My name's Steve. I'm uh, one of the elders here at Echo. Every once in a while, they let me speak. So I'm glad to be here with you guys today. Um, I was, I was going to say I was here at the beginning. Uh, my wife and I started uh, the church with some folk. Uh, and uh, at the beginning, when we moved, uh, we lived in the Mason area. So we left Mason to come down to Walnut Hills. And we were trying to do a quick transfer. So that was back when everybody was buying up the condos and before the market fell. So we just got a condo really quick. It was a nice place. It was very compact, no storage. It was like 1,000 square feet. Um, and being in a, combo, a condominium here, we had no yard. So for us, you know, still wanting to be active outdoors, we were fortunate in our community to have, like, one of the best yards available, which is Eden Park. So I don't know how many of you all have spent time in Eden Park. I would say that over the past 13, 14 years, I know this park intimately. Like, there are sometimes hidden trails that you don't even know exist. I've, I've actually wandered in the non-trail wooded area. So it's interesting as I go through the park, there's all these little places where I'm like, okay, I know where the tourists are going. If I want to find a non-tourist area or an area that doesn't smell like pot in the middle of the summer, I know where those places are. So I don't know your familiarity with the park, but um, Mirror Lake, and some of you might even understand, Mirror Lake is the big, low, it's lower in the park and has a massive fountain that you can even see from northern Kentucky. That actually, it is painted like that. You're like, what is that water formation? They have actually, the, it's painted to look like that. Uh, you just don't get to see it because you never see the aerial view. And if you're looking at Eden Park Drive, which cuts around a big hill, um, up further Eden Park Drive on the right side is where Crone Conservatory is. So that's usually where you know people know where that is. But if you were to leave Crone Conservatory and start to walk down the hill and <laughs> carefully cross the street, because it drives me crazy, there's no crosswalk there. And I'm just shocked that nobody's died because people think that Eden Park is the Autobahn, but that's one of my foibles, the things that I come through. But if you meander through Mon uh, the, the um, I was going to say Mongolia, which is the, the wrong thing. They are called magnolias. The magnolia grove, the Mongolia grove is something completely different. The magnolia grove, which should at least today, you know, if, it, if you might want to get out before the rain, because after the rain, these things are only around for about four or five days, and they're in full bloom right now. But you have to get off the trail a little bit and go even toward, like you're walking in the woods, toward one of the, the pump house right here. And in that circle, there's actually a little seating area. If you were coming up Martin Drive here, so you can see where the, uh, you know, the old pump house was, you can barely even see it. You can see there's a couple little benches right there. There's a fountain there that was installed in 2001, and it's an interesting fountain because it's predominantly made of granite. It's not that big. It's, it's really probably only five feet around, and then there's a copper front to it, and it was a gift to the city from a woman whose wife was a judge in the city. And on the copper part of the fountain in front of it are words that say, let justice roll down like water and righteousness as a mighty stream. And it's interesting because when this woman dedicated the fountain to her husband, People were talking about this verse and they said, this is a, you know important quote of 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because he would say this repeatedly in some of his sermons. But often overlooked here was this was a quote of the Bible. So some people attributed the words of the prophet Amos from chapter 5 verse 24 as being the words of Martin Luther King. He wrote it in letter from a Birmingham jail. He would say it in the pulpit as he was moving about. And this quote though became synonymous with the civil rights movement and the movement toward justice to the extent that when a woman was trying to remember the justice that she felt her husband brought in, that was the quote that she used. And I find it interesting because for me, the soul of these communities around here, you, if you even go from Mount Adams to, to, to Walnut Hills, to East Walnut Hills, and even if you pull out, maybe part of the city can be found in this park. And right in the center of that is this plea for justice. I don't believe we live in a time that the world is more unjust than it has ever been. And that actually might make it different from some of you. Some of you might be like, Steve, you are incredibly wrong. These are the most unjust, unjust times that have ever existed. I would argue against that. But I would say this. I would say the big difference that we look and see and experience today is that through our digital connectivity, our awareness of a lack of justice is higher than it's ever been, right? No matter where you live, you are confronted with issues of justice. And because of that, your mind might bring some sort of questions to light. You might just say, well, why do we live in a world where the wicked prosper? Why do we live in a place where the marginalized have no voice? Your plea can very well be the same one from Amos chapter 5 verse 24 that Dr. King repeated over and over again for this very reason we would love to see justice rolling down like water. So what we as a church are going to do over the next few weeks is examine this topic under a series we're titled, entitled, Let the River Roll, Justice in an Unjust World. Because if you're an urbanite, or even if you just play one on TV, if you come into these settings, and regardless of where you live, or, or who you frequent life with, wherever you're at, the issue of justice is going to loom large in your life. And what we want to see is that if we are people on mission together, moving as a community, from where God has us now to where he would ideally have us be in the future, we need to grapple with this topic. And we're predominantly going to do so in the weeks that follow in a study of the book of Luke. And we're going to do so by examining the life of Jesus because Jesus sought to bring justice to an unjust world. So in your pew, there's some Bibles in front of you. If you choose to do so digitally, we invite you to go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 21. We're going to try to work our way through this this morning as we are introduced to this new series. Let the river roll. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all 
the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And I'm going to stop there because I think there's a lot just within there. I love this idea that Luke begins this story. And if you read the other gospel writers, the story is very um, descriptive. It's, very, it's really in-depth. By the time you see this, you're going to look through this, is that Jesus is talking about the baptism of Jesus, and he kind of labels it like it's this afterthought that happened. It's like, hey, by the way, everybody, Jesus was baptized too. I love this as a phrase because then we have to understand what happened previously. And on your own time, feel free to go back earlier within Luke chapter 3. And you'll see there, and even before that in the book of Luke, there's introduced right at the same time as a Jesus, a character named John, John the Baptist. And even if you're not churchy type people, maybe you've heard of John the Baptist. He was this massive figure who really did not have much to contribute within the entire biblical story. But he looms large. One of the reasons why is because he was the cousin of Jesus. But another reason because of his mission. And Jesus' mission was to prepare the world for Jesus' coming. And the way that he did that was by doing two things. Number one, preaching, and number two, baptizing. So understand that even though he was known for these two different things, they were very much interlinked. John's message, if you read the text before this, is he was telling the people, you need to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So John is preaching repentance, and the action associated with repentance was then be baptized as a submissive act In your path toward repentance. So repent and be baptized is a very biblical New Testament sounding message, right? Repent and be baptized. So this is what's interesting is that we read in Luke chapter 3 that Jesus was baptized too. So this is supposed to be the response of all these others who heard John preaching, repent and be baptized. John decided, I will be baptized. John had people come to him and say, baptize me. I need to repent And here we have the introduction of Jesus in this story. And it's so bizarre, friends, because if John was preaching repentance and you understand the the nature of who Jesus was, how the scriptures provide him, Jesus lived life perfectly. And then doing so, why did he need to repent? Like, I need to repent way much. Like, I thought about just including the list of things from which I need to repent. And more so than just my personal embarrassment, there's just, you know, the bulb in the projector to show the list would burn out because my need for repentance is so great. However, Jesus had nothing that he needed to repent for. Why, why, why does Jesus do this? Can I add just the second thing to this that makes this repentance loom even larger? We sometimes miss this within biblical geography, but Jesus was from Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. There's this whole string, though, is that because the census, that's where he was born. Really, he lived in Nazareth, which is like a more northern part of Israel. This place in the Jordan River where John was baptizing was really southern, more toward the Dead Sea. So for Jesus to go from Nazareth down to the Jordan River to be baptized was a journey of somewhere between 60 80 miles right like y'all I was pissed that I had to walk a block up the street to get to church today right some of you are like man there's no good parking spaces to be had here 
buy a parking lot echo, right? Like, you know, we're frustrated we have to do that. Jesus is like, look, I'm going to go on a 60, 80 mile walk. There was no mass transit at this time. It's not like they linked up the donkey chain and Jesus could just pick one and hop along. He walked 60 to 80 miles to be baptized for something that he didn't even need to do. Why do you do that? And I add this for us. He does it to set an example for us. To set an example for us. Because friends, you and I need repentance in our lives. We need to submit to that. And what Jesus wanted us to see through his actions was this. Is that, look, I'm willing to go in on this even though I don't need it. Because the concept of repentance is so important. And you have to ask yourself, why not me? And you know, why not me? It harkens back to this idea. Why would I really not want to show the list of things from which I want to repent from? It's because I'm prideful. It's because I'm absorbed with me. It's because as much as I want to be down to earth, really, I don't want you to know the junk in my life because it would embarrass me. And we've had those moments, right? Because I'm an ordained minister, I've had, you know, all these just interesting experiences in a long time. I have never had a substance abuse problem, but I've ministered to many people who did. And part of that is, is that sometimes people approach you, you're talking, and I'm like, hey, let's go to a meeting together. You want to go to a meeting? It's like, okay. So I accompanied uh, one of my leaders at the time. I said leaders. It was a... it's a big thing, so it's actually not the right word. Somebody's just going to be like, Seth, you have a problem. It's not Seth. And it's nobody actually that is part of this body. But do you like that? That's why you write notes and you don't go off that. <laughs> I didn't say his name. His name was Tom. No, I'm joking. It wasn't. <laughs> We're going to dox him right now. It'll be great. Okay. But let's call him Tom because his name's not Tom. They're like, it really is Tom. Forget it. That was just, I love how I put a leader. Now somebody's going to go on my Facebook and try to figure out who the person I accompany in AA meeting. You will never find it. So anyways, I'm going to the meeting. I say this. I go to the meeting, right? And I'm in the group. And you know how, if you've ever even seen it on television or know how a meeting functions, you introduce yourself and you say why you're there at the meeting. And I just remember it's like, oh, man, this, this circle's coming my way. What do I do with that? And I'm just like, hey, I'm Steve. Hi, Steve. I was like, I'm with him. And it's like... And, it was like, and I was kind of, you know, there, I was like, I, I've always wondered, why did I say that? My name is Steve. I'm with him. You know why? Because I'm like, hey, guys, I hover above this group because I'm not one of you, right? And I look, and I'm like, what a jackassy thing to do, right? Because there's so much in my life that I have to admit and recover from, and yet I don't want to articulate that. And yet Jesus Christ, Son of God, was like, hey, everybody, I'm going to walk 80 miles to get baptized. Why? Because that's the pattern that is helpful for us. Will you look at the next verse? Where, uh, verse 22. Um, As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And the thing that this is establishing is that even though Jesus was baptized too, his baptism was not a normal baptism. Like, you know, in this description, sometimes we go back and we read stuff in the Bible and we're like, okay, that happened. Why? Because it happened in the Bible. Seas part, you know, bread rains from heaven, these types of things. Fish just multiply. And here, Jesus is baptized. You're like, okay, there's a dove, there's a voice. This is just like biblical stuff. But this was abnormal, friends. 
And John, who was doing the baptize, would have been, baptizing, would have been aware of this. All the people who were there observing would have seen this too. There was something that happened here that was out of the ordinary. And what this is doing is establishing a key aspect of the story that we will return to. But stick with me as I want to move into the transition of the story. And we're going to start in verse 23 and then keep moving. Because then we read, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. It's this really quick U-turn. Like I told you, every other gospel writer who talks about the baptism of Jesus will talk about the exchange between John. He goes into the water. What happens? John's just like, Jesus went, was baptized, voice, dove. And let me tell you about Jesus. And it just departs from the story entirely. Now, in this departure, he still adds information that I think is incredibly compelling. Number one, the idea that Jesus was 30. Any 30-year-olds in the house? Anybody right now? 30 years old, exactly. Just checking. Because, you know, you hit that point. And I don't know about you. When I turned 30, I was like, I'm the age of Jesus. Now. Right? Like, that's good. And then by 33, I looked back at what I accomplished in this point. I was like, by this point, Jesus died for the sins of the world, and I can barely send a comprehensive email. I feel as if I am lesser. I don't like to understand that, but recognize this aspect of his life is that Jesus, there's a silence. We hear nothing about him from age 12. And at age 12, all he's doing is teaching some people in the temple, like, this is really better theology. And then nothing happens in his life until he turns 30, and then it's like it kicks into high gear. I say this because there should just be this little micro lesson within here, is that as you are living your life and trying to figure out your accomplishments, the ones that you have done and want to do, just realize that Jesus was chill with not getting anything done until he was 30. So if you feel like you wasted your 20s, I guess Jesus might have too. And I know that makes you feel weird because you're like, is that really theological? It's not not theological. So just say, if God was content to be like, look, I'm going to go through this incubation period, that's good. Maybe the bigger lesson here, and this is what happens when I riff on this, is the idea that when you're in your 20s and you think you know everything, God was like, look, even, you know, my son doesn't know everything, right? Like, so if you're in your 20s, it's a tough trek. Just hold on for dear life. It'll get better because then you'll be 30 and then God will call you to do things. Does that work, Seth? I don't think it does, but I just threw it in there. I just always am fascinated by this. Okay, Jesus is 30, and then it's like, and he was the son of Joseph, so it was thought. So I love the, that Luke just puts in these little things in here. It's like, first it's like, Jesus was baptized too. Like, like that's not important. And then it's, Jesus was the son of Joseph, so it was thought. You're like, that is an element of doubt that is present within the Bible, right? Like, Jesus, so it was thought. It's like, Luke, what are you doing right here? And it's not that Luke doubted here, but he was uh, acknowledging the fact that people did doubt whether or not Jesus was the son of Joseph. Because if you remember the story that Luke tells in the beginning of his book, you know, about shepherds in the field and, and pregnant virgins, there was considerable doubt about whether or not Jesus was really the son of God or whether he was a bastard child that got a story stapled to his life to try to make him more of a mythological creature, Right? So what, what Luke is trying to do here is just deal with the obvious. And this is why I appreciate Luke. Luke is like, look, guys, there are people around here who doubt that Jesus is who he was. But let me tell you something. And then this is my favorite, is he starts into a genealogy. And I don't know if any of you all are Mormons in the crowd, but there's nothing like a good genealogy to get you going. That was a layered joke. If not, just Google Mormons and genealogy, and this stuff will work out really well. What is that website called? They own the one. Ancestry.com? 
Yeah, you're like, hey, Ancestry.com, by the way, the, or, the Mormons own it. They want your information so that, that they can baptize you on behalf of your dead relatives. I kid you not, that's a thing. So you can, hey, but if you use it, you're like, okay, did I do some like sin or something? No, just use it for what it will, but realizes that while our youth minister or our youth ministries have pizza party, Mormon youth ministries baptize people in the name of dead people. I kid you not, this happens. Google it. Some people is like, where is this going? I promise I'm going to get us someplace well. This is just a sampling then of what happens in the 20 verses, uh, 24 and following. There's this list of people that are included. It's like, hey, Jesus, son of Joseph. Then we keep going from Heli, Matat, Levi, Melchi. And by the way, where are there, there are some people in this list that are people of note. You've got a David right in the middle. You know, you've got a Judah, which is, you know, Jesus, a lion, Judah, that was a tribe named after. Man, a lot of these names on this list are completely forgettable, Right? Like, you know, they're, they're in heaven right now, and they're fist-bumping Luke, but they're like, hey, thanks for the shout-out, right? I lived 60 years, you know, I farmed soil, nobody knew about me until you threw me on the list. Big ups to Luke, right? They were obscure figures, but that doesn't mean that God wasn't using them in some way. And again, we look at Jesus being 30 and what have I done in my life? Look at this, is that sometimes we don't even know what we've done with our life until our life is far over, and all these people who lived their lives, and maybe they were pious, and maybe they were just horrible people, but either way, God used them as a thread to bring Jesus into this world. Here is the problem of the list, and this is why I love this. Luke is using the word list to prove his question. Some people say that, you know, Jesus is Joseph's son. That's what it was thought, right? Well, he gives this long list to establish this, and by comparing this list to other lists, this is what we know is that Luke's list is not completely accurate, okay? He omits names. He jumps over things. And some of you right now, you're having like this tense, you know, church moment. You're like, what did Steve say? Like, Luke's list isn't completely accurate. Like, what is he saying about faith? Understand that this list was not intended to be fully accurate. Luke was not trying to give you every single person in Jesus' family tree. Are you tracking with me? So it doesn't mean he was wrong. It means he was using words as a device to land someplace. And this is what I love about it. If you look at that list, and I don't know why I have Exodus 2, 8. I think I left the other slide here. So ignore Exodus 20. That has nothing to do with this. But if you look in your Bible, the list, you start with Joseph and you go through all the list. If you want to have a fun thing, don't do it right now because you'll lose your mind here. But if you count every name included, counting Joseph and counting God, do you know what the total of the list is the names, the number of names here, is 77. Luke's goal was to put 77 names in this list. Now you're like, why is he doing that? Well, here's one of the beautiful things. If you understand the influence of scripture and numerology within the Bible, is that there's some numbers that just repeat constantly. 12, right? We, we have 12 tribes, we have 12 disciples, 40 is a number. You know, Jesus is getting ready to go to the wilderness and fast for 40 days, 40 days and night from the flood. One of those great numbers is the number seven. Parenthetically, that was the number that I wore when I played soccer in college. Because seven in the Bible is synonymous with perfection, which is why I wore it. Because <laughs> I needed the number to be perfect because my game was not. 
So we have this list right here. What Luke is trying to say is like, look, here's Jesus' genealogy. You don't believe that this is true, right? This whole story. You're thinking it's fabricated? He goes, let me tell you about the list. He gives a list. Why? To show that Jesus was human, but he includes 77 in this, right? Why? Because he wants to show two things. Number one, he wants to show that Jesus was perfect. He's not just seven perfect. He's double sevens, right? You're like, well, then why didn't Luke include 777 names? I don't know. Ask him later. But he was like, that's enough, right? I've made my point. That Jesus was perfect. And then ultimately, in verse 38, who is this descendant from? Because he's like, look, you're doubting whether Jesus could really be human and the son of God. All right? He goes all the way back to Adam. Who, and who is Adam's daddy? We don't know because Adam don't have a daddy because it was God. Right? So what Luke is trying to do in all of this establish three things for us right here. First thing he's trying to establish is like, look, Jesus was perfect. He did not need to be baptized, but he repented anyways. Why? Because he wanted to show us how it's worked out. That, that friends, I think is a great view of the perfection of Christ. Because he was not so self-absorbed that he was at the meeting saying, hey guys, I'm just here with them. Right? I'm just getting dunked because everybody else is doing it. I want them to feel good about themselves. No, Jesus went into the water. And John, if you read in other books, John is like, Jesus, I don't need to be baptizing you. Let's, let's reverse this. And Jesus is like, nope, baptize me. Jesus was perfect, right? The second thing that Luke wants to establish is that Jesus was actually a human being. And this was a popular belief that happened decades after Jesus lived because people were trying to intertwine Christian theology with popular philosophy. And there was a belief that human flesh was evil and there should be revoked. So anything that had anything involved with humanity was sinful. And what Luke wants to say is, look guys, he, he was purely human. Do not doubt that Jesus was an actual human being, flesh and blood, that had to live through fevers and paper cuts and bad weather, right? He, he lived through all of it. Jesus was fully human, but he wants to land at this point too, is that Jesus was actually God. He was all of this, wrapped up into a single person. So what Luke is saying is, as, as I begin this story, let's make sure there's no doubt in my perspective, what Luke is saying is, is that if you're going to buy into this story, don't just buy in part of it. Don't just say, you know, hey, Jesus, good guy, great teacher, you know, big thumbs up on him. He's like, no, I'm not mincing words right here. Everything that comes out about this person, this is the son of God. He's different. Hence the voice. This is my son. Listen to him. Now, I love this text, even because part of me is, I, you know, I'm Mormon. I love me a good genealogy, right? Like, I love this text. It's great because you can see all this. But now you're like, where does this coincide with this look at justice? And I think if we go back to the text that we opened with, with uh, the prophet Amos, well, let me do this and jump back to this, that we need to let justice roll down like water and righteousness as a mighty stream. This is a biblical concept is that God will ensure that justice happens. God will ensure that justice happens. Now, where we struggle with that, and I'll say this again, from a theological level, is this, is that we understand the very nature of who God is, okay? And God is paradoxical, 
right? God is both and. That's why when we say Jesus was fully human, he was fully divine, you're like, how does that work? I have no idea, but I can solve that in the idea that God is paradoxical. Because he made everything, he gets to make up the rules. I don't understand how it works, but I believe that it works. And similarly, when I look at the nature of God, there are two aspects to his nature that are in conflict with with each other. And that is that God is wrathful. And we don't like that as a concept because, you know, we, we, we tend to camp out there. We tend to see that as this, you know, isolation point. When we talk about the wrath of God, if you start to hear that in church, you're like checking out, how do I get out of here as quickly as possible? Because I don't want to deal with wrath. But we have to understand is that the scriptures speak to it. And the reason that scripture speaks to it is that as God's nature is being holy, he is perfect without sin. When sin comes into his realm, it needs to be accounted for, and that accounting is wrath. But this is why we usually avoid it altogether, is because we choose to emphasize the, uh, the, the polar nature of who God is. God is also grace, Right? This is the part where we want to stay at, right? I want to be in a church where they're always talking about the grace of God. But we have to understand is that the grace, God giving us blessings despite us not earning it, is only understandable through his wrath. Correct? So these, this is the nature of God. So then where does justice lie? And I'm going to tell you I deliberately... It, it lies in this amalgamous area underneath it because this is the tension of justice, Right? Because what is just is the establishment of what is right. But what is truly right in one aspect of God's nature, the right thing is just that we deserve his wrath. However, the other aspect of God's nature, it's the idea of grace, right? Like we just deserve, we, we don't deserve it. We are gifted, gifted his grace. And that's just within his eyes. So you're like, how does that work out? And I'm going to tell you just, you know, as a theologian, I'm always not entirely sure. But you know what I do see? As I see this being traced, there is a metaphor within the scriptures that tries to employ this, and that is the experience with water. With water that flows. Right? I, didn't even, I don't think I included this one. I, I started in Genesis 6, but we always, we understand it is that the description in Eden talks about a river running through Eden, right? Then we see The justice of God being exacted through water and the great flood, right? With Noah, he tells Noah, he's like, hey, I'm going to use water to enact my justice here because it's necessary. And again, this is why we have to read through all of scripture. You can't just pull out a story and then camp out there. You have to see what God's doing everywhere because then this gives somebody levity. And again, it's happened three weeks now. Uh, We go to FCC games all the time and there's this dude at the FCC game who has his... Um, speaker set up and he's got you know his lavalier right here and he is preaching hell fire and brimstone to all the people that walk in and you know most of us just ignore it some people who you know have had a few to drink go up and engage him and every time I'm just kind of like you know I've, I've dealt with such people to where I'm like I can't switch your mind here probably in 10 minutes let alone in 10 hours of conversation the problem is is that we isolate aspects of the scriptures and in doing so we take a subjective view of what God is trying to do. That's what this is, right? So do not negate the flood that God used water for wrath because in the Torah, the same story narrative in the first five books, 
God's like, by the way, I'm going to bring you to the Red Sea and I'm going to deliver you. And he shows dominion over water where water was present as his people passed through it. And this is why the New Testament writers use the Red Sea <coughs> experience. <coughs> I'm going to stop. He uses the Red Sea experience as a metaphor for baptism, right? They're passing through the Red Sea. And this is what God is doing. He's like, look, I will show you justice of deliverance by you going through the water. Over and over in scriptures, there's this association, even at the very end of the book, right? What is the new view of heaven that exists? And in heaven, the angel shows the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. What is heaven? Heaven is where justice is undoubtedly visible. Heaven is where we see justice realized. And this gets me to maybe a polarizing statement, but I will tell you that I believe it to be a biblical one. And this is tough, maybe not for this crowd, but maybe, but it's even tougher when we take it to the world, is this. Our desire to establish justice on earth will never be full if it is absent Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no true justice without Jesus. That's what Luke is trying to tell us. And again, for us, we're like, okay, I'm Christian, I'm on the right side. Okay, now, maybe you feel that elation. Maybe you're the person, you're like, okay, I'm Christian, that still makes me feel bad because then I look and I walk through the neighborhood or I'm helping the kids at the Prentice Ballet, right? I'm doing these things where I'm interacting with people and I see aspects of injustice. I see kids who don't have enough food. I see people who are living uh, through health issues, right? I see all this and you're like, where are you, God? And it is not that God is absent, but that we need to continue to focus on Jesus' justice. Because as much as Jesus' justice for us in the world today, he is leading us to justice for eternity. That's a tough message because it makes us sound arrogant and that's why it's clear to us that we cannot be arrogant. That's why I think Luke starts with this baptism story and is telling us about Jesus because the key for us, followers of God, to bring justice in the world, the first thing I think has to be our own repentance. We need to come to grips with we are in need of a savior. So a couple of things in this. Number one, um, and this is who we are as a church, but again, we, we hold to this because we believe it to be biblical because there's different church traditions. But I know there are a lot of church traditions that don't necessarily emphasize baptism. It's something that we do here as a body. And we don't do this to try to say, hey, <laughs> your, your denominational theology is mistaken and we have the right holder of that. No, we're, we're trying to say, if I open up the scriptures and I see somebody moving through repentance over and over, the New Testament tells me the way that is established is being baptized. So we will, when we come to these texts, we don't shy away from what we offer. Is that maybe you've been at a point where you're like, hey, I'm a Christ follower. I've never been baptized. You know, if you want... To have that experience, we go talk to Seth after church. Just have that conversation. Because we don't do it from a judgmental perspective. We do it from a perspective that we need to humble ourselves. This is the thing in this conversation. Because I've dealt with people who, like, you know, I had this 
Methodist friend of mine, and he would want to argue baptism the whole time. And, you know, whenever he would want to argue aspects of theology and how the grace of God works, I would just come back to this. I was like, did Jesus need to be baptized? (laughs) Did he need it? No, he did it. Why? I think he did it for us. So this is not, you know, maybe it is a guilt-inducing. If it's guilt, it's the Holy Spirit working right here. But I'm just telling you is that maybe this is the message for you is that you should embrace baptism. But here's the thing that I think is most clear to me as we are starting on this movement towards justice is that it can become subjective in our lives because we selectively choose issues of justice, right? Praise God that he is the dominion of all and he is going to bring it back. But as we begin this study, we have to establish this idea that Jesus, friends, is the embodiment of justice. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy in Amos chapter five. And how wonderful it is that different preachers throughout generations, even like Dr. King, have been able to employ this idea that we need to let justice, just let it flow like a river, that the key to that actually happening has to be through Jesus. Because he's justice. He lets it flow. Love this from John chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So the challenge to us as we go out this week, I think, is to look at Jesus and then to look in a mirror and say, if I really want to see justice in this world, am I willing to admit that I am unjust and it needs to start with me? Why? Because truly, if we followers of Jesus commit to him, then the waters of justice will flow out to all who see. I love you, but repent. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I'm going to be as bold in prayer to speak out for my sisters and brothers here this morning. And we're going to come before you and we're going to repent, Father. For as much as we see injustices in this world, Father, we are usually immune to the fact that we commit them ourselves. And within our lives, Father, where prejudice has been able to be harbored, where hatred has maybe reared its head, maybe in those recesses that we don't even want to admit, where our biases show through and we have unfortunately been instruments of injustice, Father, we ask for repentance. We praise you, Father, because even though we are deserving of wrath, you bring us grace. And as we want to be able to bring justice to the world that we see, Help us to repent. We ask for forgiveness. Where we have sinned, both knowledgeably and sometimes in ignorance. And we ask the grace of your son Jesus upon us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his perfection. Thank you for the place that he has prepared for us. We give you praise in his name. Amen.